History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 93, Ezra. Before we get into things today, I want to take a moment and do one last reminder about the History of Persia crossover live show with So You Think You Can Rule Persia. This coming Sunday, March 5th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I will be joined by Umberto and Sariel of So You Think You Can Rule to discuss a hypothetical reign of King Cyrus III, a.k.a. in real history, Cyrus the Younger. What if he beat Artaxerxes II and became King of Kings? And at the end of it all, we will rank King Cyrus according to So You Think You Can Rule Persia's normal ranking system, and then do a little bit of a Q&A. You can get tickets to that event at moment.co slash historyofpersia and stream it for seven days after the live recording. Again, that's moment.co slash historyofpersia to get tickets for a choose-your-own-Persian-history podcast. I really hope to see you all there. We are depending on an audience to make our decisions for us. And you can find a link to the ticketing website in the description of this episode. Alright, we've been on a narrative streak lately. I summarized the political and military narrative of Artaxerxes II's reign in the last episode, so you can look there for all of that stuff. Last time was Artaxerxes II's family episode. We covered his brothers and cousins, but more importantly, his sons and daughters. 
Artaxerxes married two of his youngest daughters, Atossa and Amestris, and I used that to talk about the often maligned subject of Quedoda, a Zoroastrian belief that underpins the sanctity of marriage inside a small community. I also talked about the competition between Artaxerxes' sons to become heir to the throne. Prince Darius may have been made co-regent near the end of Artaxerxes' life, and threw it all the way in a botched attempt to assassinate his own father. Prince Ochus conspired with his half-sister Atossa to get a leg up on the competition, driving his eldest brother to suicide and sending a son of the disgraced former satrap Tirabazus to assassinate his last real competitor. Meanwhile, Ochus himself was off to the Levant to defeat the Egyptian invasion from episode 91. But now, it's time to jump way back in time and focus on a different topic, one that has been kicking around in the background every now and then since Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon. It's even featured a little more prominently in some recent discussions about Egypt. The Judeo-Christian Bible, especially the Old Testament, known as the Tanakh in Hebrew, is one of the most important collections of sources from the Achaemenid period and the preceding Iron Age. Large sections of the Bible, either distinct books or sections of other books, were written entirely under Achaemenid rule after Cyrus the Great allowed the Jewish people who had been deported by the Babylonian Empire, to return to Judea. Or more accurately, to return and or send their descendants to a homeland they had never seen, given that the Babylonian exile lasted almost 70 years. Because of the Jewish perseverance over the centuries and the monumental spread of Christianity after the 3rd century CE, Many of these texts, canonical or not, are much better preserved than most of their contemporaries. As historical sources, biblical literature provides a unique glimpse into a relatively minor sub-province's culture and history during the scope of this podcast. I won't do my full rant about how both biblical literalists and Reddit atheists are comically wrong here. I did that on Patreon a couple months ago, and we'll put a link to that in the description of this episode. Many books of the Bible deal with the Achaemenids directly. Isaiah, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Haggai, Zechariah, Esther, Malachi, and Daniel, just to name some of the ones we're not too concerned with today. Many of the events discussed in those books have already come up namely the return from exile under Cyrus the Great and subsequent events under later kings. However, the two books that are potentially most important to Abrahamic religious history come from the Achaemenid period, and those two can tell us the most about Achaemenid Judea. They are Ezra and Nehemiah, if you look at a Christian Bible. If you look at the Jewish Tanakh, they are grouped together as a single book called Ezra-Nehemiah, 
which is identical except that the chapter numbering doesn't restart for the Nehemiah part. Patreon subscribers were treated to a much longer description of how there are actually 14 different variations on the book labeled Ezra or Esdras, depending on which canon you are looking at. I won't drag all of that in here, but again, I'll link off in the description. In fact, I'll make that episode free for a little bit, because it lays out my arguments for why I'm putting this episode here, under Artaxerxes II, instead of the conventional date for Ezra and Nehemiah under Artaxerxes I. But I will explain my reasoning in brief, because it is a big break with mainstream scholarship. The Book of Ezra explicitly states that the Jewish leader named Ezra was sent to Judea by the Persian king in the seventh year of Artaxerxes' reign. Nehemiah is likewise sent by the king in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes' reign. The problem? The Bible doesn't use regnal numbers, so we can't say with certainty which Artaxerxes we are talking about since three of them reigned for over 20 years. We can safely rule out Artaxerxes III, since the people and events being referenced would bleed over into Alexander the Great territory if that were the case. That leaves three basic interpretations. A. They both came under Artaxerxes I. B. Nehemiah came in year 20 Artaxerxes I, and Ezra came in year 7, Artaxerxes 2. Or C, they both came under Artaxerxes II. All three options require one of them to be pretty old while still being an active participant in parades, but option B stretches that to the extreme. However, B does eliminate a potential conflict between option A and the evidence from Elephantine while option A has the benefit of not conflicting with Josephus' Antiquity of the Jews even a little bit. However, as you might have guessed, I am solidly a proponent of option C. Traditionally, this has been seen as clashing too much with some of the primary evidence from both Elephantine and Josephus, because it would imply that Bagoas and Nehemiah were both governor of Judea at the same time. But that's a biblical studies conundrum not faced by any detailed study of ancient Persia, even though many Achaemenid historians just accept the conventional biblical studies conclusion. In Greek and Aramaic alike, the words used to describe governors at different ranks inside any given satrapy are loosely defined at best. The bigger issue with dating Ezra and Nehemiah comes from the dates given in both books. Both men are said to have arrived in Judea after the temple in Jerusalem was rebuilt. The first half of the Book of Ezra is a history of how the Second Temple was constructed and the opposition the Jews faced from their neighbors. The book explicitly references opposition in the time of Darius the Great, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes I, including a very detailed section for the latter. However, 
every version of Ezra jumps around the timeline throughout this first half of the text. Specifically, chapter 4 starts in the reign of Cyrus and then goes chronologically through problems down to Artaxerxes I, but chapter 5 goes back to Darius the Great. Then, halfway through chapter 6, we get the line, They finished their building by the command of the God of Israel, and by the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Because the preceding chapter and a half were all about Darius the Great, and a line in chapter 4 says that things ran smoothly from the reign of Cyrus to Darius, this has traditionally been interpreted by religious and secular scholars alike as referring to Darius the Great. But, uh, we have several paragraphs explaining how the temple was not complete under Artaxerxes, and the only available Darius to come after an Artaxerxes is Darius II. Case closed, right? Not quite. The other sticking point is the high priest Eliashib, who numerous genealogies in and out of the Bible identify as the high priest when the temple was built and the grandson of Yeshua, the high priest during Cyrus's time. Yeshua is already presented as an old man at this point, so Eliashib couldn't possibly have lived all the way to year 20 of Artaxerxes II. That would be 384 BC, 155 years after the exile Eliashib is supposed to have returned from as a young man. That would seemingly rule out Artaxerxes II on the assumption that Eliashib and Nehemiah were contemporaries. Except nowhere in the entire book of Nehemiah do the two of them actually interact. The only supporting evidence for them as contemporary is that Nehemiah announces that he will rebuild Jerusalem's walls in chapter 2 of his own book, and Eliashib is mentioned as a participant in rebuilding the city gates in chapter 3. We've already established that these books don't always go in chronological order, and Nehemiah himself is not mentioned in chapter 3 at all. English translations occasionally throw a then or a next as the first word of chapter 3 to imply order of events, but there's nothing of the sort in Hebrew. Nehemiah also discusses events, quote, in the days of Yohanan, Eliashib's grandson, who is mentioned in the Elephantine papyri as a contemporary of Darius II and in Josephus as the high priest who murdered his brother in the temple, which I discussed in episode 91, i.e. Artaxerxes II's reign. In the days of is a phrase pretty exclusively used to describe people who are or have been high priests, governors, or kings in Ezra and Nehemiah, meaning that when the book was written, Yohanan had already been high priest and his grandfather had passed. Of course, you could attribute that to a later author, but large sections of Nehemiah are written in the first person, 
so it is at least intended to present a contemporary account. Basically, I don't think there's any evidence to actually suggest that Nehemiah and Eliashib were contemporaries, and there's plenty to suggest that they were not. See Patreon for the whole spiel. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So, story time. Ezra bin Siriah was a Jewish priest living in Babylonia. His family was one of hundreds that had not returned in the previous waves of Jewish migration back to Judea. And he ministered to the local community near Babylon. Primarily, he was a scribe dutifully writing down and memorizing the various prohibitions and decrees of Jewish scripture, supposedly handed down from God to Moses in ancient times to govern the Jews as God's chosen people. He gained prominence in his community as a judge and a legal scholar. Then, in year 7 of Artaxerxes, that is, for our purposes, 397, he received a letter from the great king himself. It was a command to go to Jerusalem with royal funds to support the temple there and make sacrifices on behalf of the king of kings. It was also a writ of request, giving Ezra the authority to requisition further supplies for the temple from local governors in the satrapy of Assyria, and exempting the Jewish temple officials from taxation. Finally, it was a directive for Ezra himself to compile Jewish law and appoint judges and magistrates across Assyria to follow those laws and adjudicate the Jews of the Western Empire in accordance with their own legal system. Naturally, being the Bible, the book of Ezra attributes all of this to God himself influencing the great king so that he might favor the Jews. In reality, this was all pretty standard stuff. I mean, if you want to believe that God was directly influencing Artaxerxes to do this at this time, great. But the Jerusalem temple was relatively new, and it was a Caymanid policy to offer sacrifices and centralized funds to all of the empire's many religious institutions. Likewise, it was standard policy for the great kings to have the various legal systems of their empire collected and codified so they could be applied to the relevant diaspora. Cyrus the Great had first applied this to Babylonian law. Darius did it for the Egyptians. 
several kings had done similar things with Greek cities. With a clear religious legal establishment emerging from the Second Temple in Judea, it was time for the Jewish version. One key aspect of Jewish law had always been the importance of hereditary offices for temple officials, and with the temple back in action, they would all be needed to carry out their traditional rites. So Ezra gathered up the descendants of the Levite priesthood who were still living in Babylon and led them off to Jerusalem, just the latest wave of Jews returning from the Babylonian exile. Several members of other prominent Jewish families joined them for the pilgrimage. It was a long journey, but as they were getting close to Judea, Ezra stopped everyone to take stock of their offerings, the people who were with him, and the royal funds they were transporting somewhere outside of Damascus. In all likelihood, this was also a stop to pick up the last round of royal donations from the Damascus treasury as well. While there, Ezra divided up some of the silver and gold vessels for temple rituals and money from the royal donations, and divided it between the twelve leading priests in his entourage. These were both small fortunes that the priests could use to establish themselves, and the temple adornments that they would be in charge of. Some were given over to the temple as soon as they arrived, but others were for their descendants to use and keep track of through the centuries as they continued to carry out the hereditary duties of priests. Ezra rang in the return of traditional law and temple festivity with a series of grand sacrifices. Twelve bulls representing the twelve traditional tribes of Israel and Judah. 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 goats were all slaughtered to burn their entrails and fats as an offering to the Jewish God, and to provide a feast for the people of Jerusalem. Then Ezra set to work. We don't actually hear all that much about his work from the Bible, and most of it doesn't seem to have come to fruition until Nehemiah arrived. The implication is that Ezra mostly sat down with all of the scrolls of scripture that people had been carrying around for the last 200 years, and spent his day organizing it into a set of coherent texts that could be practically used. He fired off letters to the rest of the diaspora, asking them to send copies of whatever they had, and had to work out the minute differences between texts that developed over large communities in Egypt, Judea, and Babylon over the course of several centuries. The final product was the Torah, more or less as we know it today. The first five books of the Bible, in any canon, are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. While various degrees of storytelling are present in all of them, whether you interpret that as history or mythology, the overriding theme of these five is the process of God giving the Jewish people a set of rules to live by, the punishments for violating those rules, and the precise details of how to apply them. Or not so precise as any rabbi can tell you better than I. Of course, most, if not all of these laws had existed in Jewish society and religion for a long time. 
Modern scholarship even understands Deuteronomy as the first attempt to do exactly what Ezra was doing in the 4th century, compiling everything into a convenient package. Religious tradition has stated that the entire Torah was dictated to Moses by God and written down in a perfect, undisturbed state in the Bronze Age and remains unchanged ever since. Any application of secular scholarship makes it clear that that wasn't the case. Never mind that the historical and archaeological consensus is that either Moses never existed, or his story played out on an insignificant scale compared to the mass migration described in the latter four books of the Torah. Stylistic and vocabulary differences all through the five books are very obvious, especially in the original Hebrew. Three writers, or probably schools of writers, can be identified throughout the first four books, and Deuteronomy is more in line with a fourth school that also includes the more historical books of Joshua, Judges, Kings, and Jeremiah. Officially known as the Documentary Hypothesis, this idea has been challenged, altered, and adapted by Bible scholars for almost 400 years. The general consensus today is that two early collections, which tended to call their god by the names El and Yahweh respectively, circulated in the Iron Age kingdoms of Israel and Judah, as the monotheistic movement developed in both kingdoms, but especially Judah, where the temple of Yahweh was dominant, two more schools of priests sat down and tried to reconcile the existing scripture. One produced Deuteronomy, essentially a summary of the earlier laws. The other tried to reconcile the existing stories into a more ideological, consistent collection, aka the first four books of the modern Torah. But none of these were neatly bound books yet. Those wouldn't exist for a few more centuries. All of it was divided up over multiple scrolls, and further generations of scribes lost track of things, made mistakes, or to reconcile things with their own theology, just changed the precise details. None of this needs to be controversial. Most of it is reflected in the historical books of the Bible. Plenty of people in Iron Age Israel and Judah were polytheists worshipping local Canaanite gods to the frustration of the priests in Jerusalem and Samaria. The biblical prophets complain about it constantly. It was the reason they cited to explain the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions. They also complain about people not knowing religious laws or having a good way to explain them to people. That's just what the prophets say in the book. You don't even need secular scholarship to get those details. So in Artaxerxes II's orders, Ezra took all of this and sat down to figure out both what laws he had to work with and to make them all agree with each other, eliminating the most egregious scribal errors and contradictions. Over the course of 13 years, he produced the first Torah scroll, a single compendium of Judaism's religious laws and the story of how they came to be. According to later Jewish tradition, Ezra also wrote the Book of Chronicles as part of this project, 
compiling a history of the Jewish people down to the return from exile. Whether or not Ezra himself actually wrote Chronicles is up for debate, but not whether or not they were written under his guidance and influence. Stylistically, Chronicles is very consistent with the historical background in the first half of the Book of Ezra, which basically picks up right where Chronicles leaves off. The second half of Ezra is a completely different genre, so it's not surprising that it changes, but it's not all that different in tone and style. It may be that the historical section was intended to be part of Ezra's Chronicle, and later editors attached it to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to make Chronicles mirror the earlier books of Kings, written before and during the exile. Whether or not Ezra wrote his own memoir, i.e. the book of Ezra, itself is more debated. It's obviously the product of one of his scribes or associates, if Ezra really is the chronicler, but given that it was written entirely in the third person, while the book of Nehemiah is largely first person, some scholars have come around on the idea that Nehemiah dictated Ezra's story as part of his own memoirs. Since both were written around the same time and are stylistically consistent, the logical scholarly conclusion is that they were, once again, at least the product of the same group working to document this period in Jewish history. As Nehemiah mixes third-person sections in and around the first-person sections, it's possible that the third person in that book was also appended by later editors, since it would be strange for one author to jump back and forth in their own autobiography. Neat side note, the debate about who wrote Chronicles also features a Jewish man named Anani, who is identified as an 8th generation descendant of King Yekoniah, one of the first Jews deported to Babylon in a genealogical list. Based on those eight generations, scholars have pointed out that Anani couldn't possibly have been born in the 5th century BC, and must have lived closer to 350, which is an obvious problem for attributing chronicles to Ezra. If you're silly, and assume that he was sent by Artaxerxes I, but it makes perfect sense if you're me, and say that Ezra and his students were working in, say, around 350 BC. In codifying the law, Ezra made himself quite unpopular for one particular religious ruling. To quote Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Ezra wrote, The officials approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you need to list everybody? Okay. Verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. Thus the holy seed has mixed itself 
with the peoples of the lands, and in this faithlessness, the officials and leaders have led the way. When I heard this, I tore my garment and my mantle, and pulled the hair from my head, and from my beard, and sat appalled. I'm sorry, I really am trying not to mock scripture, but, I mean, really. We're now a few years into Ezra's time in Jerusalem, and there was a problem. A consistent theme throughout Jewish scripture is the need for Jews to separate themselves from the pagan peoples around them. Strictly speaking, Torah law is not entirely opposed to marriages between Jews and non-Jews. But the prophetic and historical books of the Bible constantly return to the problem of monotheistic Jews marrying pagans, and either turning to polytheism themselves or allowing their children to worship the other parents' gods. To make matters worse, the very priests and temple officiants he had brought back to Jerusalem and lavished with Persian gold to help establish themselves were marrying into the families of other faiths. For Ezra, there was only one solution, a complete prohibition on mixed marriages. So that night, when he presided over the prayer between the temple sacrifices and dinner, he publicly lamented and lambasted his fellow priests. For example, Ezra 9, verses 9 through 12. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to give us new life to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants and the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is a land unclean with the pollutions of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations. They have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, so that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for inheritance to your children forever. After making this withering judgment in public from the front of the temple, Ezra had to run away and spend the night hiding out with a friendly priest because he nearly sparked a riot. After all, here he was, demanding that some of the most prominent and powerful families in the city annul valuable marriage pacts with other local leaders, disenfranchise and disown their children through these marriages, and limit themselves to the local Jewish community, which was still quite small and provided no political benefit. However, he had the full imperial authority of the Achaemenid king to codify the word of God. Those are two very powerful people to have on your side, it turns out. Ezra's word was both royal and divine law, so long as he had a scripture to back him up. People came out to protest and petition Ezra to change his ruling, assembling in the middle of a rainstorm to beg for their families. But Ezra would not budge. He came out into the temple precinct and repeated his ruling from the previous day. 
The Book of Ezra, either written by the man himself, or at least a very favorable later editor, portrays everyone as just accepting this aside from some of the most recalcitrant priests. But the book is short, and even in brevity, it can't hide the uproar. Ezra still had to seek shelter with a friend instead of going to his own home, and people still came out in a thunderstorm to protest. The people were not happy with this. Ezra formed a commission of priests and the heads of prominent noble families to go out into Jerusalem and the surrounding villages to go over the scripture and come to a conclusion for themselves. There was no doubt in their minds that Ezra was right. Scripture did condemn mixed marriages, especially as they led to apostasy. However, Ezra didn't actually have the political authority to enact his ruling. He could appoint magistrates and judges, but that took time and on his own, he didn't have the authority to break up marriages, just declare them unlawful. The actual use of force would require a friendly governor. Enter Nehemiah, stage left. But that will be the next episode. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line. 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.